All right, if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 13, that's the, the text. And the subject, we're back again looking at the temptation of Jesus, and this is actually our third week here. It's taken us a little while to get through this temptation. We were gone uh, last week, some of us, but we're in this passage of Scripture for the third week, and we're taking our time here because if you remember, it wasn't just as simple as looking at it. There's a lot going on here, and to catch what is going on, we first needed to see the context because it's really difficult to understand these temptations if you don't connect them back to the bigger story, which has to do with Jesus's identity as the Son of God. You remember Luke's whole question in this gospel is how can Jesus be the fulfillment of the Old Testament if he ended up being crucified on a cross? And Luke's answer begins with understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And to help us understand what that means, he drew our attention to a couple Old Testament pictures. David, Israel, and Adam. And one reason those pictures are so important is because They help you understand why Jesus is in the wilderness being tested by the devil in the first place, and even why he's in the wilderness for how long he's in the wilderness, and why Satan tempts him the way he does. In other words, they provide the context for the temptation, Adam, Israel, and David, and and maybe especially Adam, because he's the one Luke brings up right before the temptation. And then second, we just kind of mentioned the setting for the temptation. First the context, then the setting. That came next. And this is where we looked at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, where Luke writes, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, which I think was important for starters because it reminds us that this was part of God's plan for Jesus. Luke tells us that twice. It was God who led Jesus out to face the devil, specifically God the Holy Spirit. And for another, because the setting reminds us of some of the reasons why this was such a test. For example, there's the word wilderness. God led Jesus into the wilderness. And we kind of put that word wilderness in bold print because it has theological significance in that in the Bible, the wilderness is a place of of testing. It is a picture of where Israel was sent because they failed God in the promised land, so it represents exile, and also because it's just a difficult place to survive. Uh, it's, It's hot during the day. It's cold at night. It's barren. It's desolate. Mark tells us there were there were wild animals, And then there was how long this temptation lasted, 40 days. And even the significance of that came from the Old Testament, actually. Numbers uh, that repeat tend to be important in in the Bible, especially when when they repeat with similar themes. And so if you look at the Old Testament and you find the number 40 coming up repeatedly, and the generic idea that people bring up why is that it often has has to do with times of, of testing, actually, but... I have a feeling that it has to do with something more than that, but it was definitely a time of testing for Jesus. I mean, just practically, if you think about it, there was the fact that Jesus had eaten nothing the whole time he was in the wilderness, verse 2, and he ate nothing, and so he must have been physically weak 
He's led by God into a place that represents testing, judgment, everything difficult. And after 40 days of not eating, he's got to be at a place of extreme physical weakness as he goes to face off with the devil. And then, then finally, after seeing the, the context and, and thinking about the setting, after all that lead-in, all that introduction, a couple of weeks ago now, we began to look at the nature of the temptation, which we said in general were pretty much about fatherhood. They're about fatherhood, God's fatherhood specifically. Or to say it a different way, uh, they're about what it means to be a son of God. Basically, the devil in the wilderness is offering Jesus a different version of sonship. There are uh, three temptations, and all three temptations are about attacking Jesus' relationship with God as his father. But we only got through one last time, and so we're slowly looking at the way that Satan tempts Jesus. And we're taking this slowly, for one thing, because this is clearly an important moment. Even just for understanding the Gospel of Luke. Because in Luke, this temptation comes right after his introduction of Jesus and right before Jesus' public ministry. So Luke 1 through 3, everybody's excited about Jesus and anticipating the ministry of Jesus. Luke 4, Jesus' first sermon. And you know how it ends, Jesus' first sermon. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, anger and basically wanted to kill Jesus. So something has happened in between to change things. And I think this temptation, what happens at this temptation, is an explanation of that. Because what the devil offers Jesus is pretty much what everybody was expecting the Messiah to be. And so it's almost like a key for understanding the rest of the gospel. It's also just this absolutely epic battle. We're, we're taking it slowly because it's important, but also because there's never been a battle like this one. I read somewhere, someone wrote, the greatest battle ever waged on earth's soil took place 2,000 years ago in the desert of Palestine. And that's not an exaggeration. And yet it's, it's kind of easy to miss that because we read it so quickly. Plus, I think with, with Jesus being Jesus, it's easy for us to minimize what's going on here and to think of it almost as if it were somehow easy for him to spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil because he's God. And while we want to be clear, Jesus is fully God. That's a given. There's no question about that. At the same time, it's important to understand that he lived his life here on earth fully as a man. He was an actual, you might say, son of Adam. And I think Luke is especially wanting us to think about that as we watch Jesus in the wilderness. It's part of why he gave us that genealogy the way he did right before the temptation, because you remember how he goes all the way back to Adam. And that was to make sure we remember Jesus is truly human. He's not sort of human. He's not a mutant superhero or something. This is not God just putting on a body and pretending. Jesus was the real deal. He became 100% human. And we've seen how in Luke, he traced that for us, how Jesus went through all the stages from conception to birth 
and how he went through all the normal stages of growing up as humans do. Jesus was an infant, a, a toddler, a child, a young person, a teenager, a young adult, a mature man, a fetus. At one point, there, there's not an area where he was somehow less than fully human. And, and that means Jesus had truly human emotions, uh, human desires, human thoughts. He, he truly wanted, he could be lonely, he could be hungry, he could be exhausted. And so it wasn't like Jesus lived his life mostly as a man. And when he was really in trouble, he decided he was going to pull out the God card and, and make it easier for himself. It's a little hard to fully comprehend, but somehow, in God's design for the incarnation, Jesus experienced his life as humans do. And I, I bring that up because as we see him in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, it's important for us to remember that's why Luke says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's, he, he's emphasizing the humanity of Christ. And that's what we're supposed to be thinking as we read this whole genealogy. This is a man going up against the devil. And remember, when we talk about the devil, we're not just talking about an idea or a concept either. This is a personal being. So this is not Jesus in the wilderness with difficult thoughts. And I know in the West, it's a little hard for us to believe in the devil, but the devil is not just a figment of Jesus's imagination either. This is not some sort of hallucination. He is real. He's a formal, former angel. And although he's not God in this world right now, he does have a measure of authority to the point where the scripture calls him the God of this world. And he's evil. That's the thing. There's not a part of him that is good, which sets him apart even from really human beings, even from really evil human beings, actually. Because evil, even really evil human beings <laughs> have some measure of pity or, or compassion. You can watch Hitler even on video playing with children, but, but not the devil. And all of his rage, all 100% of his evil thought, desires, and intentions are, are focused on destroying the Son of God. And so where God has a plan... The devil has his own plan, and he wants to destroy the seed of Eve before the seed of Eve crushes him. And so here in the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, it is like this is his moment. This is what he's been waiting for. He's not half in. He's not apathetic about this. This is someone who was happy to inspire genocide for the sake of destroying Jesus. That is how serious he is about all this. He was happy to murder all those innocent children back in Bethlehem. I think the devil has to be behind that. And I say all that because I want you to imagine, I mean, imagine, here is this man, Jesus, being led into the wilderness, this desolate, forsaken place to spend 40 days alone, being attacked, being tempted, and lied to by the devil. This is an epic battle. And yet I know, again, there are some ways we almost unconsciously feel like in spite of all Jesus went through, this was, was probably not really much of a struggle for him. And so somehow he still really doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted. And one of the ways we do that is by saying to ourselves that it must not have been as quite, as, quite as difficult for him, this battle, because he didn't struggle with original sin. Which is a good question, uh, because it's true. 
He didn't. And what I mean is, we're born sinners. And even now that we're Christians, there are wrong desires in us. And Jesus didn't have that. He couldn't have had that. There was nothing in him like that. There were no evil desires that attracted him to temptation. And of course, we know that's probably part of why he was born of a virgin. It had something to do with that, I think. And then, of course, we also know that Jesus was God and not just a man. And as God, of course, he couldn't actually sin. And so sometimes I think we look at what's happening in the wilderness, and because we know that, it doesn't feel like much of a battle to us. And I know, uh, honestly, I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions about that, I think. This is the God-man we're talking about, someone very unique. And so I'm not surprised that I sometimes have a hard time understanding how it all works out. I'm more surprised when people act like they can easily understand how it all works out. And so I'm pretty happy just to say what the Bible says, which is that Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. And so I believe it. In faith, I believe it. This was a real test. And to demonstrate how, you know, I I think we could at least say that we all know that just because someone is victorious over a temptation doesn't make it not a temptation or, or make it not hard. I think back to Adam's battle with the devil. If Adam had withstood the devil's temptation, we wouldn't have looked back on that and said, well, it wasn't much of a temptation since Adam was in the garden before sin entered the world. That would have been a real win for Adam. Plus, if we keep going, I don't think Jesus' righteousness makes this temptation less in that sometimes the more you want to do what's right and the longer you hold on to doing what's right, the, the more difficult the temptation becomes, the more intense it is. It's kind of like, to use an analogy, I guess, it's kind of like how we know there were people who made it through the Holocaust. So there were Jews who weren't killed. They survived. And yet, even though they survived, you wouldn't say to them, it must have been easy for you because you survived. No, they were there. They saw that. They they have to live with what they saw, even though they didn't die. And so Jesus as well, the fact that he survived temptation and won doesn't make what he went through any less intense. And what's more, the reality is when it comes to evil, being in, in the presence of evil, the less holy you are, the easier it is for you to be around it, where really the more holy you are, the more you hate evil. And you know this, the more you love God, the more awful it is for you to be around sin. And so with Jesus's lack of original sin, his absolute moral holiness, I don't think that's something that could cause us, should cause us to say this wasn't difficult. Instead, it actually helps us see how in some ways it would have been more awful for him. And just to be absolutely straight, if it were you or me out there in the wilderness with the devil, this would not have been an epic battle at all, because we probably wouldn't have lasted even a minute withstanding temptation, much less 40 days. Plus, and and this is maybe the most important, as Jesus faces the devil, he was facing the devil as a man, depending on the spirit to overcome temptation. And so there's a theologian named Bruce Ware, and he wrote a book called The Man Christ Jesus. And he says a lot of times when we think about Jesus not being able to sin, we assume the fact that he is God is why he did not sin. And this is a little tricky, but think with me about this. 
Because sometimes we think if Christ could not sin because he was God, then the reason he did not sin was because he was God. And that's not quite right, actually, at least not according to Bruce Ware. Because he says, why you could not do something and why you did not do something are two different questions. So, for example, let's just say someone is swimming across the ocean because he wants to break a a world record. And there's a boat beside him the whole way. He's swimming. The boat is following him. And this person makes it. He actually swims across the entire ocean, and he doesn't drown. Why doesn't he drown? That's the question. Why couldn't he have drowned? That's another question. Why didn't he drown? It's because he kept swimming. Why couldn't he have drowned? It's because he had the boat beside him. But really, and this is important, that boat is not the reason the swimmer didn't drown. It's why he couldn't drown, but it's not why he didn't drown. And so if you meet him after he swam the entire ocean and you look at him and you say, oh, that was easy for you because the boat was there the whole time, he would be like, "Uh, you think swimming the entire ocean was easy for me? Are you serious? And with Jesus, this is a quote, the reason Jesus did not sin is not because he relied on the supernatural power of his divine nature or because his divine nature overpowered his human nature, keeping him from sinning, but instead because he utilized all of the resources given to him in his humanity, which is deep. And we could even go deeper. I've got one more illustration that I could give you, but I'm not going to give you from the pulpit. So if you want that other illustration, you can ask me later because I'm not sure enough about it. It's a little too theoretical, but I'll, we could talk about it on, on our own. It's, this is a little deeper than I can think normally, but it's another reason why it's worth taking this slowly. It's a, it's a real, genuine battle that Luke places here at the beginning of the gospel And it's important for us to understand because it's going to help us understand what happens to Jesus later, why it goes down the way it goes down, and because it also gives us confidence that Jesus is going to be able to do what Luke said he was coming to do. Because you remember, for three chapters now, Luke's been telling us that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill the Old Testament. And that means he's the one who's going to solve all the problems of the world. And yet, we know if he's going to do that, he's going to have to be able to deal with the devil, since the fundamental problem in the world is a sin problem. And since all this sin is under the protection and backing and promotion of the prince and ruler of this world, the devil, if someone's claiming he's coming to break the power of sin and conquer evil, then he must be able to go into battle against Satan and come out victorious. Jesus says later, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his good, goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so, if Jesus cannot defeat Satan, then he's not going to be able to rescue us. If, if Jesus is not able to overcome temptation, then he cannot be the Savior we so desperately need. We need to, to look at these temptations. It matters for us. First and foremost, because we need to know for sure that Jesus is able to conquer sin and Satan himself. But for another, it matters Because we need to know how to conquer temptation ourselves. As we watch Jesus succeeding here, we're we're watching something really unique because he is succeeding where everyone else is failing. And so we're looking at these temptations slowly because they have something to say to us in our struggle with temptation. 
And yet it's easy to miss because reading through the temptations quickly, these three temptations don't really seem that tempting to most of us. I mean, first, there's turn stones into bread. That's verse three. And then second, there's worship the devil. That's verse seven. And then third, there's throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, verse nine. And while I'm sure that each and every one of you were tempted last week, I'm guessing that there aren't many of you who would say, I feel like I was tempted in those particular ways. I've never had someone come in for counseling who said, you know, I'm here. The reason I'm here is because last week I was tempted to turn stones into bread. And so we might look at these temptations and think they have nothing to do with us, which I think is a huge mistake. Because if we look a little more closely, behind the specific ways the devil tempted Jesus are some of the absolute core, most common temptations for us. Now, he, he, he puts it in a little different way as he goes after Jesus, of course, because Jesus is the unique son of God, and these temptations have to do with that role. But still, he fashioned the particular temptations he used with Jesus out of the same old material he's been using on God's people pretty much since time began. As we look at the nature of these temptations, we see ways that each one of us is going to be tempted. And so I think it's really important that we take time to learn from Jesus how to be an obedient son. Like, like first, just to review, the first temptation was an attempt to get Jesus to doubt the Father's love and to mistrust the Father's care for him. And as a result, for Jesus to feel like he has to go out on his own to get his needs met, he has to act independently of the Father. And that right there, of course, is a very real temptation for most of us. We have excuses we use, things we say, but the heart of so much of our rebellion against God is the fact that when things get difficult, we stop believing our Father loves us, and we start doing what we think is best instead. Now, second, the second temptation. That was a couple weeks ago. The, the, the second temptation now follows a similar theme as the first, only this time it's not so much Satan tempting Jesus to doubt his Father's love as it is him tempting Jesus to doubt his Father's plan. So if the first temptation was to get Jesus to question the way the Father was taking care of him in the present, the second temptation is to get Jesus to question God's plan for taking care of him in the future. The first temptation has to do with daily provision. The second temptation has to do with future inheritance. Luke tells us, verse 5, verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Which, of course, is a a big claim for the devil to make. But before we get into the question of whether Satan could follow through on that promise, we should see first that what he is saying he could provide for Jesus is actually what God the Father had already promised him. That's important. This was God the Father's plan for Jesus. This is Luke 1 and 2. Glory and power and authority. In other words, Satan is not offering Jesus something that he wasn't going to receive. 
Because we know from the Old Testament even, God the Father's plan was to give Jesus all authority in heaven on earth. He was going to put Jesus in the highest and most supreme position over all things and give him a real and glorious kingdom. The difference, however, the difference between the plan Satan is laying out and God the Father's plan is that God the Father's plan, in God the Father's plan, this recognized power, glory, and authority was coming after the cross. So it was suffering, death, then resurrection and glory. That was God's strategy for the exaltation of his son. And Jesus knew, that's the thing, this wasn't something God hid from Jesus. Jesus knew, reading God's word, he was going to suffer. It's written, he says later, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And Jesus knew how he would suffer. He says, uh, Mark tells us, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And Jesus knew what would happen after that, he says, and rise again. And the reason Jesus knew that was because of what the Bible says later on in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to get to Luke 24, where Jesus is walking with some of his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. They, they were discouraged because they were kept from recognizing him because they thought it was over for Jesus. And Jesus, you know what he does? He rebukes them. And he says in Luke 24, 25, oh, foolish ones, which seems strong, but listen to why. And, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And the point is that Jesus knew this was God the Father's plan for him. Because that plan had been revealed in God's word. It was written, suffering, then glory. And what Satan is doing here is telling Jesus that he thinks he has a better path for him to follow than that. Which is really one of the basic temptations for us and for you as well. When we're tempted to sin, understand this. When you are tempted to sin, it is not that you are being offered more good than God's already promised. Understand that. Understand that. When you are being tempted, Satan cannot offer you more good than God's already promised. Because we couldn't find more good than what God has said he's going to give us as Christians anywhere. Instead, when we are tempted, we are being tempted to question God's plan for giving us that good. That's the way temptation works for us. And it's the way Satan goes after Jesus as well. He takes him up, Luke tells us, Luke 4, 5. Matthew actually says it more specifically. He says he takes him up to a high mountain. And it's a little tricky for us to know, is this a vision or like something that's happening physically? Uh, and the reason I say it's tricky is because there isn't actually a mountain in the world where you could see all the kingdoms of the world at one time, obviously. So something supernatural is going on here. But maybe the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain, and there in the form of a vision, he shows him the kingdoms of the world. I, I think that's what's happening. But really what's important is the fact that Satan here is trying to mimic or parrot God. Watch this carefully. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you remember how Satan told Adam and Eve, you will be like God. And that seems to be what Satan has wanted for himself since the start, to be in the place of God, which is why he's taking Jesus up to a mountain. It's because 
he's wanting to give Jesus counsel, an alternate revelation, really, a word to replace what God said. And that's usually the significance of mountains in, in Scripture, especially this idea of a high mountain in the Old Testament. As we think about the history of Israel, mountains are places of revelation. Even Elijah, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, went to Mount Horeb to meet with God. And so Jesus has just told Satan that he's depending on God's word. You remember his response in the first temptation? Man shall not live by bread alone. And that quote doesn't end there. Uh, Matthew gives us the rest. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what Jesus is saying to the devil is that he doesn't just let his desires take him here or there. Instead, he's dependent on God's word, God's counsel, God's revelation. And in doing that, really, Jesus is showing us what it means to be human, to, to truly be human. This is how God designed his children to live. We're not made to determine our own destiny. We're not independent beings. We've always needed outside counsel. We've always needed a word from God, even before the fall, if you think about it. From the beginning, man needed God's word. We have always needed counsel, revelation, even before there was sin. And without that word from God, we would not have the ability to understand or to make sense of the world in which we live. And so what Jesus is saying is, I can't just go and turn stones into bread because I think that's a good idea. I live my life dependent on what God said. That is how humans are designed to live. And that's why it's not surprising in this next temptation to see G Satan taking Jesus up to this mountain to give him an alternate revelation. It's as if Satan is trying to replace God's counsel with a revelation of his own. It's like, okay, I see you're depending on God's word. Well, let me give you a better word to depend on instead, which of course has always been his strategy. Even if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, again, has God really said? Remember? Satan's like, let me offer you a different way of looking at things. And Adam listened, which is why we have all the misery in the world that we do, actually. Because after God gave the first Adam very clear counsel, Satan went on the attack. And that first Adam turned from relying on God's word to listen to Satan's counsel, which of course didn't work at all for him or, or, or for us. But I guess in a sense it did kind of work for Satan because it was through this false counsel that he was able to lead the first Adam astray, which is what he was hoping to do. And from that point on, he's been using this same strategy really when it comes to temptation over and over and over again. Has God really said, ah, I, I got a better plan. From Adam's time on, as one man explains, there have been two counsels in this world, divine counsel and devilish counsel. The two are in competition. Throughout the course of human history, both godly and ungodly counsel have always been present, vying for man's acceptance. The history of individuals, families, nations has stemmed directly from whichever one of these two counsels was followed. There is no third counsel. There are just two ways to go. Satan's way or God's way? If we reject God's counsel, we end up following one form or another of Satan's counsel. That's how we were made, to depend on counsel and to be changed by counsel. And one of the reasons Satan's counsel is so tempting 
for most of us is because while he talks about the same kinds of things that God does, instead of emphasizing faith, trust, patience, submission, obedience, relationship, promises, hope, and all that, Satan's counsel usually just focuses on the here and now, meaning he focuses on pleasure now, what you can see right there in front of you now, comfort, prosperity, and glory now, rather than later. He's razzle-dazzle, Satan. I I once heard someone say he presents the bait and hides the hook. And the more enticing he can present the bait, the better, because it means the less likely you are to think about the hook. Again, the temptation is never presenting more good than God promises. That would be impossible. Instead, it presents a different plan. And to get you excited about that plan, temptation focuses on what you can see, on getting it now, quickly, without cost, which is clearly the way Satan is trying to go after Jesus here in Luke 4, because Luke tells us somehow he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is verse 5. And the idea behind that is just power and glory. It's like Satan wants to dazzle Jesus with it, which is obviously pretty savvy because as a man, which is how Jesus was living, as a man, he hadn't ever been out of Israel except for that time when he was a child and lived for a short while in Egypt. So all the kingdoms of the world, this must have been stunning, their glory. Here Jesus was having lived most of his life to that point in the countryside as a small town carpenter in some basically no-name village in Israel, seeing the most powerful kingdoms in the world in a moment of time. And I'm sure studying the scriptures, he knew what God the Father had in mind for him, but this was in his face. That glory was through faith in God's word. He wasn't seeing it, that glory from God. Jesus knew because of a promise. But here Satan is showing him cities and countries and kingdoms that at this point, as a man at least, he had never seen. And he was offering all of this to Jesus for what might seem like a simple exchange. Power and glory for worship and adoration. That was Satan's plan, his offer. And obviously, I think there's some serious arrogance in in Satan's proposal and some deception as well. I I don't think this plan is ultimately going to work. It's a lie, which should not surprise us because deceit is really the foundation of sin. Satan's a liar and temptation lies. That's how it works best. It was through deceit that sin first came into the world. It's by deceit that sin continues to succeed in the world. And it's because of sin that we still have deceit in this world. Deceit is the very nature, root, and of sin. If it wasn't for deceit, temptation wouldn't be very tempting. There's hardly anything that has to do with sin that wouldn't immediately fall to the ground if Satan were honest. Deceit and sin live together and perish and die together. Satan's the great deceiver. He makes it his whole business to deceive. And of course, he's trying to deceive Jesus here, because while it's true that Satan has some power and authority, we know that God's promise to crush this serpent's head. And it's obvious as we look at Jesus interacting with demons later throughout the rest of the gospel that Satan doesn't have as much authority as he's pretending to have here. Ultimately, it's God that's in absolute control. God's the owner of the world. Satan is offering Jesus more than he can deliver. But again, that's always been his way. That's the point. He's not really concerned with truth. He's always presenting the bait and hiding the hook. The bait here mean all the good that God promised Jesus in the future without the cost. 
Satan can't offer you more good than God's promised. The fact is he can't even give you the good that God's promised. But what he can do is lie and pretend to be generous. Like here with Jesus, it's like he's trying, trying to sound kind almost. It's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Look, you might imagine him saying, I, I, I can make life easier for you, and you deserve it. You're the beloved son of God, and, and you're going to have to go through so much. And, and I know you're supposed to have the kingdoms of the world for your own. I get that. You're supposed to be the ruler, and I'm happy to give that to you. It's been given to me, and I will gladly give it to you. And the way I want to give it to you, you don't have to worry about all this suffering. You can just go straight to the good part, to the crown, and forget about the cross. I'm sure you've had enough suffering already. You don't need any more. I'm willing to give you the whole thing. It's mine. I can give it to whomever I wish, and I would give it to you at no cost, except, except, oh, yes, except for one thing, worship. And notice this is it's really important. It's striking. The way Satan's going about tempting Jesus is almost shocking. It's not what we might expect because he's doing whatever he can to get Jesus to avoid suffering. That's his aim. His plan in the wilderness, and honestly, a lot of times, his plan, how he comes after us, he tries to offer us what the Bible says we can only find in God without suffering, without difficulty, without the cost. Satan is what Martin Luther used to call a theologian of glory. And this is part of what makes his temptation so suffering. A theologian of glory, what's that? A theologian of glory builds his view of God and the world on what he can see right now with his eyes. When they look at the world, that's what they expect God to be like. And so they're all about power now, the razzle-dazzle now, total success now. He can't process suffering. When the reality is, looking at the cross, we see that God often achieves exactly what he wants to achieve by doing the exact opposite of what we as humans expect. God's basic path to glory is through the cross. It comes through suffering. And Jesus knew this very clearly. That's why he told the disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The, the reason Jesus calls on them to take up his cross is not because he hated them, but because he loved them. And he knew that this was the path towards the glory God had promised. Suffering, then resurrection. That is the pattern laid out for us. And yet the thing is, there are a whole lot of people out there, honestly, who can't handle that. And so as a result, they find Satan's offer of glory now without a cross pretty tempting. They, they want the glory. They want the good that God has promised. They're just not willing to accept the cross, God's plan. But what people don't seem to realize is that if you actually do take out the cross, and all that goes with it, self-denial, repentance, obedience, if you take all of that out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity anymore. That's it. If you take out the cross, you might call what you're talking about the gospel, you might call it good news, you might call it Christianity, but really it's satanic. You remember even in the gospel of Mark, after Jesus talks about the cross, Peter comes up and what does he say? No, he rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get 
behind me, Satan, because this is the gospel that Satan preaches, not Jesus. Focus on the gifts, not the giver. This is this temptation is about making getting the glory and good God's promised more important than God. Obviously, because his condition for giving this to Jesus is worship. Which, again, is maybe the part of the temptation that we don't really get. Uh, I don't think we always get. Because, really, obviously, most people know devil worship is wrong. And so they don't feel much conviction when they read this. I mean, we don't feel like we're tempted to worship the devil. Until you stop and think about what worship actually is. Because specifically, what is Satan wanting from Jesus here? It's more than just bowing the knee for a moment. Because that's not what's really at the heart of worship, just a physical bow. Instead, what's at the heart of worship? What are you doing? You are pledging allegiance. What Satan wants is a transfer of Jesus' allegiance, ultimately, his faith, his trust. So, worship here is looking to Satan to do for Jesus what only God can do. I like how someone's put it. He says, Satan showed here explicitly what he'd been trying to do all along. Satan was not just trying to tempt Jesus. He was attempting to adopt Jesus. Satan is assuming the role of a father, first in provision, later we'll see in his protection, and now here in the granting of an inheritance. Satan didn't just want to be Jesus' Lord. He wanted to be his father which is why he took him to a mountain, offering him this revelation and showed him all these things. He's saying, come to me as a father. Trust in me. God the Father had promised Jesus an inheritance, and of course Jesus wanted that inheritance. He should have wanted it. It's right for him to want it. And yet Satan is acting here as if he were the one who was actually in charge of the inheritance that God had promised Jesus. And he's tempting Jesus to look to him and to listen to his counsel, to follow his strategy to gain exaltation, the exaltation that God had promised. That's basically what it would have meant for Jesus to worship Satan. It is to make a greater priority out of the gifts than the giver. And while I know that, that most people would never say they're Satan worshipers, hear me now, many people are actually looking to created things to provide for them what God has said he would. They're not trusting God's promise. They're looking for the good God has said he would give them in the very things God has created. And that's Satan's strategy, not God's. Their life is dominated by a desire to make this world heaven right now. They want their inheritance early. They're making a God out of their comfort. The gifts of God are more important to them than the God of the gifts. Their allegiance to God only extends to how well he gives them what they want, when they want it. And once that stops, they're not loyal to him any longer. They have no place in their Christian life for suffering. And so you can listen to them talk for hours and hours and hours about the Christian life, and you will never hear about the necessity of suffering in, for following Jesus. It's, uh, it's funny, if you listen to Paul talk in Acts 14, 21, Luke tells us it was Paul's normal way of teaching to say that it was through many tribulations and sufferings that we must enter the kingdom of God. And there are some ways of thinking about a relationship with God where you'll never hear that. You'll never hear talk about self-denial. They're always instead talking about the now, the now, the now. 
And so they're not content with trusting God, trusting his word. They have to see it. They aren't willing to wait. They're impatient. Instead of depending on God and looking to him for approval and resting in his care for them and waiting patiently and happily on God's plan, they follow Satan's counsel instead and try to get the glory and good that God has promised by avoiding the cross. And so they end up ascribing the kind of value to earthly things that they should only give to God. And as a result, they live their lives basically following Satan's strategy, which is power now, glory now, comfort now, 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 not later. And the issue is here, and I want you to hear this, you have to understand that the issue is not the prosperity and the glory. That's not the problem. As believers, we should want that. We should totally want that because we have an inheritance promised to us. And that inheritance involves a place of prosperity and glory and physical healing and comfort and joy. The problem with settling for earthly prosperity and glory and comfort now is not that it is something we shouldn't want. It is that it is not prosperous and glorious and comfortable enough because the prosperity and glory and comfort God has in store for believers in the future is much better than any glory and comfort and power we can find for ourselves now. Amen. Satan's good is not better than God's good. So the issue is not longing for glory. It's the refusal to trust in God's plan for glory. It's not in wanting too much good. It's in looking outside of God for that good. It's making my glory, my comfort, my prosperity more important than God's glory. It's refusing to trust and submit to the Father's strategy for glorifying us and doing us good. Amen. And it's crazy. It's, it's, it's stupid, actually, to think you could glorify yourself better than, than God could or provide for yourself better than God could. But it's pretty tempting to tell the truth. Because life is hard. It's hard. The older you grow, the more you, you realize that, right? When you're young, you sometimes have some naivete, some of us at least, not everyone, but some of us have some naivete. And then as you get older, you're like, wow, it's hard. And, and sometimes, especially as a Christian, it's hard because obedience to Jesus requires you doing things you wouldn't normally do. It requires saying no to yourself over and over and over and over and over again. It requires suffering. And there are points where you might say, you know what? Why does it have to be so difficult to do what God wants? This is taking too long, God. This is way too long. And I hear about all this great blessing, and I hear about all this joy at church, all this hope and glory, and that's fine. But what I see is a lot of sorrow, and I see a lot of problems, and I see a lot of pain. I've got illness. I've got this. I've got that. I don't know how long I can take this. I'm obeying you, and I'm not seeing the result. And so we ask ourselves, as someone has put it, is there a shortcut to the glory? Is there a quick path to the crown. I'm not sure I want your way anymore. I, I, I think I'm going to grab some satisfaction for myself. And off you go into a path of sin that you think will bring satisfaction, setting your mind on man's interests, not God's. But good news, Amen. not Jesus. Because Jesus sees this for what it is, verse 8. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Amen. 
which is another quote from Deuteronomy, actually. As Jesus fights against the devil, he's always quoting scripture. And this passage that he quotes only reminds us of the danger of this temptations of saints because it's about Israel. And what happened to Israel after they were delivered from Egypt? Which God accomplished in a really amazing way. You remember how he actually had the Egyptians give them their gold and other things on the way out? We've been reading Exodus on Thursday mornings. And in the story in Exodus, this stands out. God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go out, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry. You shall put them on your sons and daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Imagine saying to your neighbor, that is a nice uh, bracelet. Here you go. (laughs) They do. That's exactly what happens. But you know what the Israelites did with all that gold that they were given not long after that? When they felt like God was too distant and too far away? They took those good gifts of gold and they asked Aaron to make a god out of it. That's how strong the temptation to worship what we can see really is, to worship the gifts instead of the giver. Even after they had been delivered in this amazing way, the next time they're in a frightening situation, they started wanting a God they could see. And they used the good gifts that God had given them to make that kind of God for themselves. And because God knew that tendency in Deuteronomy 6, which is the passage Jesus is quoting, he tells them, after he gives them the land and they're enjoying everything they didn't earn that he just gave them, that they must not start looking around them the next time things become difficult and start worshiping other gods instead. You should worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And, And it's easy for us, I guess, to look at the Israelites and think, how could you ever do this? How? When God's been so good to you, how could you start looking to idols as gods? Except, except that we are often tempted to do the exact same thing, even though God made us to live for something really big and lasting, eternal life, his glory. Our minds are easily stunned, John Calvin says, by the empty dazzlement of riches, power, and honors, and become so deadened that they cannot see any farther. In other words, In the middle of this world, we easily turn aside from trusting, loving, hoping in, finding our security in God, to finding it in the created things of this world, from resting on God's promises to following Satan's counsel and worshiping what we can see. But good news, not Jesus, not Jesus. He saw the devil's counsel for what it was, which was a lie. Because what would have happened if Jesus had said, yeah, I think this is a good idea. Let me avoid the cross and achieve the glory now. Let me hit fast forward. First, of course, Satan couldn't really give him to him. It wasn't his to give. And then second, even if Satan could, Satan wouldn't have followed through on this promise. If Jesus had ended up worshiping Satan, Satan wouldn't be giving up a kingdom, but rather would be gaining another subject. Seeking the kingdom while rejecting the king means losing both. When you make the good God's promised more important than God, it stops being good. If you need proof of that, think back to the first Adam. What happened 
when he turned from God's counsel to Satan's and ended not with glory, but with exile. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that. As the beloved son of his father, he trusted his father, specifically by obeying his word and trusting his plan, even though it meant suffering now and glory later. And I want to call you, church, to follow him, follow him. Out there in this world, there are all kinds of empty promises that are being offered you week after week. Lots of counsel, lots of pressure to seek your comfort now, to seek your prosperity now, to seek your glory now. Don't be fooled. Don't waste your life by forgetting God and living for now. Don't follow the first Adam. Don't believe the lie that someone can offer you more good than God or that there's a better way to finding good than God's plan. Instead, commit yourself to following the second Adam, Jesus, who trusted his father's plan. Do you understand? Jesus had to trust God the father's plan, even though it was hard, and even though it meant the cross. He shows us what it means to have faith. And rejoice because his father did exactly what he said he would. He kept his promise. He he raised him from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand. Which makes it easier for us to overcome this temptation. Because we have proof that Satan's plan didn't work. And we have proof that God the Father's plan does. Before Jesus died, he studied God's word. And he believed which is why he told the disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the thing is, that happened. We have such a good reason to reject temptation and to commit ourselves to Jesus's plan for discipleship and obey when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. For whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake and the gospels will save it. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Jesus and of his words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is life-giving. We thank you for the word. We thank you for Jesus who comes into this world to defeat Satan and, and, and to show us the path toward being an obedient son. Thank you, Jesus, that you did what we could not do. You resisted temptation, and you resisted temptation for us. This is a substitutionary temptation, in a sense. You didn't have to come into this world. You didn't have to be tempted, but you did that so that you could provide us a perfect righteousness. And yet, at the same time, as you're doing that, you're teaching us, you're showing us, you're giving us an example, and you're making it easier for us to follow. And we pray that we would that we pray that we would. Please help us, Lord, not to be so easily fooled and to start worshiping the gifts instead of the giver, to start living for prosperity now, to
to, to reject your plan. We are people who, we can't determine our own destiny. We can't just come up with our own ideas. Lord, we, we have to listen to counsel, and we want the counsel we listen to to be yours because we know Satan lies, but you never do. You are always 100% true. And if you say suffering is the path to glory, we believe it. And we have reason to believe it because Jesus... You are sitting at the right hand of God the Father now. You have been glorified, and you are going to finish what you started and glorify those who trust you. May that be us. We pray in Jesus, your name. Amen.